This is Indie Business Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8, Women, Wealth, and Wow. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Indie Business Podcast. I am your host, mentor, and coach, Donna Maria, the founder and CEO at IndieBusinessNetwork.com. My goal is to help makers and handmade entrepreneurs build a solid business foundation, increase your income, and use your business to create the life you love. In this episode, I will introduce you to Diane Humkey of Essential Wholesale in Portland, Oregon. Essential Wholesale is one of the Indie Business Network's very first members, having joined way back in 2000. The company was founded by Kayla Fioravanti, who was my guest in Season 1, and her husband, and Diane purchased the business in 2011. Under Diane's leadership, the company has grown by leaps and bounds. They supply a huge selection of naturally derived cosmetic bases and natural and organic ingredients, plus some small-run private label services. They are a great option if you want to scale up your cosmetic business. I met Diane personally a few years ago on Indie Cruise. She comes from a family of entrepreneurs, and she understands business inside and out. She is especially intuitive when it comes to providing advice to very small entrepreneurs. She can mentor and coach anyone to success, and she can cover all areas of importance, but her special knack is in crunching the all-important numbers. You'll hear more about this during the interview. You will enjoy how Diane delivers no-nonsense advice in a down-to-earth style. It's all about women, wealth, and wow on the Indie Business Podcast. You can get a summary for this episode at IndieBusinessNetwork.com forward slash 21. I'll be right back with Diane Humke. Hello, Diane Humke. I'm so excited to have you. Welcome to Indie Business Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, Diane, you know, I just, you know, I've already shared a short introduction of you and your business, Essential Wholesale, but I would love it if you would share with us a little bit about your entrepreneurial background and how you got started as an entrepreneur. Well, um, I've always been entrepreneurial, even as a child. Uh, I did the normal things that a lot of kids did back then, picking berries, and then I had my berry stand and sold lemonade and did all those fun things. My first uh, real job was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. As a 16-year-old girl, you wouldn't want to do that today. <laughs> but, <laughs> I have to what, say, a, what a great way to start out, though. Well, it was. Uh, if you can do that, you can pretty much do anything, mm-hmm. believe me. <laughs> so uh, I went away to college and studied business. And then uh, we I came from a uh, entrepreneurial background. My father had an industrial supply business he had started in 1935. So I come from a family-owned business background. Did the normal things that, you know, kids do. I worked in the accounting department in different areas of the office when I was growing up in the summer. So I just kind of absorbed business. I I just sort of always knew. And I don't ever remember learning how to read a balance sheet and income statement, I just kind of always knew. So our family was sort of that way. It was it was built around the business. We had a lot of long-term employees that were like family. So um, it, was, it was just kind of an unusual upbringing. 
it, it was just always part of how I was. And because my parents were older, um, when my dad died, my mother ran the company uh, until 1983. When her health failed, my sister and I went down and ran it. And we grew the business, changed kind of the lines that we were in. And then in uh, 2007, I sold the business and retired at the age of 51. Then we ended up uh, coming back to Scapoos, where we live, and uh, I had been uh, in a business group called the Chief Executive Forum that I joined in 1992, Mm -hmm. and that was probably the single best thing that I ever did for our business. It uh, it put me in touch with like a mastermind group, right? And in the morning we would meet and we'd have a class. We did this one day every month, and so you'd learn something that was important to someone in the group and usually to everyone in the group. Then in the afternoon they acted like an outside board of directors. So you could pose a question and then you'd have you know 15 other um, CEOs tell you what they would do. Wow. So that was incredibly valuable for somebody who was as young as I was and as inexperienced as I was. It's like a master's in business life. So I actually did that for almost 20 years, and uh, that was wonderful. That's where I, I met Dennis uh, Faravanti, who uh, Kaylin, he started Essential, and if it had not been for the forum, I never would have been involved with Essential Wholesale. So... Um, I hear so many great stories about masterminds, and so thank you for sharing that. I want to take you back. You know, it's always interesting to me, Diane, um, the children of people who grow up in entrepreneurial households. I did not. My parents had traditional jobs. Um, There were sort of people in our family on the periphery with a business, but nothing that I really had access to. Can you share a little bit, Diane, about that dynamic and, and how you think it helped you uh, in your own entrepreneurial endeavors? Well, I think it has to do with uh, your priorities and what you consider to be normal. Um, I remember, you know, the business had to come first, but it was for the benefit of the family. Um, So, you know, if something went wrong with the business, you didn't take vacations. Um, I know my husband and I, we ran, we were down working at the company from 1983 to till 2007, and. we had two vacations in all that time. Why? And so people think about, um, you know, they want to own their own business so they have money and they can do what they want. But the truth is that you are where the buck stops. So, um, you know, I think being raised in an entrepreneurial family, your expectations are different. You don't don't really get disappointed when, uh, when something happens with the business, when, you, you're not going to go on vacation or whatever. You recognize this is an investment you are making now for your for your future. Mm. So it's um, it's a different mindset, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes it can be a bit stressful um, because it seems like the work never ends. But you know, the good news is if your business is growing, then you're actually getting what you want. And Diane, do, do you also find for you that? whatever business you are working in and owning at any given time, that you have some sort of passionate investment in There's some sort of passion inside you that um, helps you to get through those times when the buck stops with you and you'd really rather be on a sailboat somewhere. Well, you know, I think the only successful businesses are ones that people care about. 
if you just do something for the money, then you know you're almost done before you start. You know, you need to care about it. And when I actually went to work for Dennis um, in September of 2010, and it didn't take me long to fall in love with the business. I had uh, I had been an informal advisor to him for several years, you know, through the forum. And uh, he used to call me outside the forum and ask advice on different topics, and I'd helped him along the way. But until I actually went to work in the business, you know, it hadn't really seized my heart. And once I did, and, you know, that's the violation of the golden rule. My my dad always said, you know, don't fall in love with something that can't love you back. But I did. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, well, let's talk about that, though. You can't. Can't your business love you back? I mean, I know I feel like like mine does. It provides for our family, and it's uh, part of the reason that opens some doors for me personally to get me into, um, you know, groups of people that I don't want to connect to personally. My business is a vehicle for that. So is that kind of another way to think about it? I think my business loves me that way. Well, I suppose that's true, but think of all the business people that you know that um, have sacrificed their families for the business. Okay. You know, I mean, you you can lose your perspective of why mm-hmm. you're doing this. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, I know I've done that myself from time to time. So I, I, I think my dad's message was, you know, you need to keep this in perspective. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting that you say that too. Tell me what you think about this, Diane, because as a woman, when I'm married, have children, um, there are times when I have sacrificed my family for my business, but it doesn't go on indefinitely. It may be a week, it may be a weekend, it may be some day when they just can't see me because I, I, I can't cook today, I can't do anything with you today because i got to get this done. And, and well, I do feel like I do that, but it just doesn't go on indefinitely so that the sacrifice does not become a way of life. Yeah, so it's a short-term investment mm-hmm. for a long-term gain. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of the entrepreneurial attitude of the family. I mean, everybody has to realize, um, you know, this is the golden goose. This right. is where the bread and butter comes right. from. And so, you know, we're all united in wanting to do this. Yes, and we have to take care of our golden goose. That's yes, a really... Good way to think about it. I know we have a lot of listeners who have family businesses, or maybe there's one person in the family who actually owns and runs the business, but um, it's sometimes a challenge to explain to everyone else why their life has to change because you have a business. Well, and the support is enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think about you know the long hours I often worked, and I was president of Ken R. Humkey Company, which was our industrial supply business. Right. And, you know, sometimes I was working down there till 10 o'clock at night, and I came home, and, you know, my husband worked too, but the dishes were done, and, you know, the the pets were fed, and things were, you know, he didn't just wait around for me to come home and do it. And so we, we love shared. him. We love him. Yeah, we shared the load. <laughs> yes, yes. And it wasn't woman work or man work. It was work. And, you know, we had to work as a team to adjust stuff. And it wasn't always even. You know, you go through these periods where you're just swamped at work. Say you get a new customer in and there's a big order or whatever. You may be working, you know, 16, 18 hours, you know, to get the customer taken care of. And, you know, things don't stop at home. So somebody else has to step up. What a, what a great approach, that flexible approach, that, look, it's not going to be the exact same way 
all the time. Anyway, it's going to ebb and flow. Sometimes you're going to hate it. Sometimes you're going to love it. But at the end of the day, we're all working together to protect and grow the goose. Well, you know, there's um, there's a negotiation book called Getting to Yes, mm-hmm. and it's a little thin book. And the premise of it is you have problems on the other side of the table, and when you're negotiating, you work as a team to address the problems. So you you stay on the same side of the table, and the problems are over there, and you work as a united team, and you address those problems. Well, I think a marriage is like that. Yeah. Because it's really easy to get adversarial, especially when um, – you know, even for an extended period of time, if you're going through something, you know, stressful at business, um, you can have a very lopsided relationship for an extended period of time. You know, at our industrial supply business after 9-11, we lost 40% of our business almost overnight. Wow. Now, I'm telling you, talk about scramble. To And we were able to hold it together and dig it out. And, you know, that was largely because of the incredible employees that we had. But it was it was also lopsided for an extended period of time. Very lopsided. Okay. Okay. You know, a so everybody has to accept that as part yeah. of it. Well, you know, you. I found out a long time ago that there's there's different classifications of worry, and you can worry about things that you can do something about. So you put a plan together and you do the best you can with what you got. Then there are things that are completely out of your control. And those you have to leave up to God or fate or whatever you believe in. And, you know, then there are things that are just going to happen. And so you look at it and you say, okay, what's the worst possible case? You formulate a plan to deal with it, and you get okay with that in your head. So you, if you approach it knowing that you are prepared for the worst possible case and you have a plan if that happens, it takes a huge pressure off your shoulders because you've already figured out the plan. You know, you don't have all this anxiety around what's coming. If it comes, you're ready. If it doesn't, all the better. Diane, you have seen a lot of businesses come and go in the time that you've been an entrepreneur, if you, especially if we go back to the time of your berry stand. <laughs> I would imagine that you have seen women advance in the business arena in several different ways. What are some of the major ways that you've noticed in the past 10 years that women have been able to succeed and achieve more as entrepreneurs? Well, let me back up a little bit and tell you, um, my viewpoint is probably a little tainted because when the industrial supply business is largely, you know, male-dominated. And I know when I went into it, I needed training. I went to Texas A&M for a two-week course in industrial distribution, and it was 47 men and me. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I learned very quickly that I had to be a strong, uh, assertive, but not offensive woman. So... um, When I look at something, I just assume I can. You know, a lot of what is out there is attitude. So if a woman has a belief that she can do something, she's probably right. And if she believes she can't, she's also probably right. So, you know, you can't give away your power. You have to keep it for yourself, and you have to decide where you're going. I would say there's more opportunities today than there's ever been. But, you know, regardless, there's always going to be those people out there trying to stop you. 
and you have to realize that you know sometimes you're not going to change their minds and you know it's kind of like uh when my husband and I disagree sometimes you know I just tell him okay well it's all right with me if you want to go through life being wrong Right, right. You know, and it's kind of the same thing out there. You can't let other people control what you do. The opportunities are there. You have to seize them. You have to keep working them. And, you know, there's going to be failures along the way. You just have to not quit. So I, I would say the opportunities for women is is absolutely huge. Plus, I think we get a lot more credit even than we did like five years ago. I know when I go to banks, uh, lawyers, CPAs, um, it's easier now. Right. than it was before. It's not assumed that, you know, they're going to pat me on the head and sit right. me in the corner. Oh, yes. Thank goodness for that. And, and I can remember when it was like that. When my sister and I went to work down at our company after mm-hmm. my mom retired, mm-hmm. we ended up having to switch advisors because nobody took us seriously. So, you know, I find that firing someone changes their attitude. <laughs> yes, indeed it does. <laughs> you know, and and you were that's such a great point that you were able to see handwriting on the wall and find a more favorable setup for yourself to get what you needed for your business. Well, you know, and it is kind of hard if you come up through a family-owned business and somebody's watched you grow up. I remember when I first went down to our company, we had employees that remembered when I was born. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so that's a very different dynamic. We had second-generation employees. It, it was very different than um, than what I'm doing today. Wow, that's amazing. And so you you uh, got to know uh, the former owners of Essential Wholesale in 2010, and then when, when was the purchase made? Well, it actually went through, um, let's see, November 30th, 2011. Right, 2011, so a little over a year later. Share with us, if you would, Tywin, what was that like? I mean, you'd obviously already had a lot of experience as an entrepreneur, but you had, and you knew a little bit, maybe a lot, about the business you were acquiring, obviously, or you wouldn't have acquired it. I'm sure you educated yourself. What are some of the things that you did? What What do you recommend that other people do to avoid mistakes when they're going to be acquiring a business that's, that's already existing and owned by someone else? Well, I would say the most important thing that was done was done by Kayla and Dennis. Ooh, what do you mean? Um, what they did is they made the business stand alone. So a lot of times a business, you know, is the owner. I see. So without the owner, you don't have the business. And what they did that was extremely smart was they hired good people and they let them run the company and then they kept their hand on the till on the tiller and they guided the ship. Right. But they made sure they developed their employees where it could, you know, they had something to sell. And so many times, um, you know, there's a great business, but the business is the, is the owner. And without them, you, there is no business. So there is nothing to sell. And so, you know, the most important thing that was done was done by Dennis and Kayla. What a, what a great point. And, you know, um, just, just seeing, because I was around back in the day when they were starting that business, and I, I do recall the evolution of them starting with doing everything themselves and slowly over a period, I mean, for a couple of years, that's just it just was that way. That's exactly how it was. But over a period of time, as they acquired more employees and created those all-important systems in the business, over a period of time, it became ready to be able to be handed off those systems and those approaches that could be done by other people, not just them, ready to be handed off to another buyer. 
Right. And then they had, you know, they're both very, very smart people. And they have diverse interests, and there were other things that they wanted to do. And, you know, as we talked about before, um, family-owned business can be extremely demanding. And I think one of the main reasons that they decided to sell was, you know, they wanted to spend more time with their children. And, you know, they were in the formative years where, um, you know, kids really need their parents and direction. You know, you get to a point where, um, I don't know about you, I personally I think I should have been locked up between the age of 14 and 22 because I didn't make the best decisions. And, uh, you know, I didn't have my parents around that much to help me. My dad died when I was 18. So I think, you know, one of their main drivers was their family and you know they were in a position where um they had somebody they trusted you know me um that I wasn't going to totally you know destroy what they built they you know this was their baby and so it just it just kind of worked out nicely that I was able to you know put a group of key employees my family you know and a handful of outside investors most of whom I met in the chief executive forum where I met Dennis. It sounds like everything just evolved over, you know, so organically. It's like, you know, you went to the forum, Dennis went to the forum. Nobody was expecting to buy a business or sell a business at that time, but the relationship seems to have developed, and all the little pieces just seem to have lined up in in a natural way so that this became a, a good thing to investigate on both sides. Well, it did, and then I have to really give Dennis kudos because, um, when he joined the forum, um, you know, he his business was in its infancy, mm-hmm. and he didn't, um, like, I had an existing culture at my company. I mean, I inherited uh, an established business that was what it was. Right. Dennis was creating his as he went. And um, in all the years that I was in the forum, which was close to 20, he he did one of the best jobs of anyone I ever met, listening to the advice that he got from the group and then going back to his business and implementing it. And so many people think they know better, and Dennis really listened. Dennis really applied, and he benefited from all that experience in that room. And so, you know, I, I really am impressed with what he did there. Yeah, it, it it is an amazing story of of the business they built. Um, yes, and and thank you for sharing that wonderful reminder of how important it is, not just to ask or seek out good advice, but also to follow it, yes. and to know the difference between the good advice that you get and the advice that you might not want to follow. Because yeah, well, and you know, yes. a lot of the advice is painful. Yes. You know, if you're going down a road and yes. you you are well invested into it, and then somebody tells you that's wrong, you need to dump it and do something else, that's really hard. Oh, that's where the metal meets the road, though, with yeah. your character development as well. So yep. great points there. Diane, what is your definition of wealth? Well, let's see. You know, I think I think true wealth is made up of the things that can't be can't be taken from you, you know, things like uh, your integrity, your knowledge, your spirit, you know, your will. Those those things are true wealth because with that you can build everything else. Um, You know, of course, 
wealth most people think about wealth as your money but in all honesty i think building wealth has as much to do with what you spend as what you earn ooh 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 say that again building wealth has as much to do with what you spend as, as what, what you earn. earn so if you live below your means you can build wealth and the best way to build wealth is to make your money work for you not just you work for your money very very good point so um in and I can give you an example of this. So yes. when when we bought Essential Wholesale, it was in a, a smaller building out in Clackamas, and it was bursting at the seams, and it was at the end of the lease. So something had to be done. Our family owned a 60,000-square-foot warehouse in northwest Portland, and we had just lost a tenant. So it worked out well to move Essential into that building, which gave us a ton of room to grow. And it also created a unique synergy. So um, our family, key owners in Essential, our family owned the building. So we're on the landlord and the tenant side, which means we have a benevolent landlord with a caring and responsible tenant. <laughs> and so it, it creates a unique synergy where you can make your money work for you. So... Um, we're able to manipulate things in a way that benefits the tenant and benefits the landlord. And, you know, essential, um, we consider essential the golden goose. You know, it is in a growing market. It has, uh, it's a manufacturer, so it has capital investment demands. And so we're able to position things where our money can work for us. We can allow essential to take the capital that it needs to invest in equipment and employees and ingredients and inventory and all the things that it needs to do to grow. And the landlord can kind of help with that within reason. So that's making your money work for you. You're leveraging what you have to grow it. And so creating wealth is not so much about what it is that you're making and this asset that you're building as it is about the things that you the, the, the things that you embrace before that to set yourself up to, to build those things. In other words, it, it sounds like what you're saying in part is it's not what you spend, it's what you don't spend for the benefit of that goose. Well, and that's true. If you, It's all about living below your means and doing the math. And I know you've heard me say do the math yes. before. Yes. Um, so many times people don't try to monetize things. And... Uh, they work and work and work, and then they wonder where all the money is. You know, and um, it's funny. I just asked my niece and nephew this question. Um, what do you think the highest expense is that most people pay every month? And what do you what do you think the answer to that is? The highest expense that most people pay every month. I don't yeah. know. It's the, the price of ignorance? Well, you know, most people would say they're housing. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if you look around, especially if you own your own business, it's likely taxes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're paying both sides of Social Security. Mm-hmm. Yes. And your federal income tax, your state income tax. Right. And right. so when I go back to do the math, a lot of times people don't think about where the largest amount of your money is going. And it's not just in those. If you look around, you've got taxes on your phone, on your gas, on, 
you know, if you drink, there's liquor taxes. I mean, there's no end to the taxes, the fees. You register your car, it goes on and on and on. It does, doesn't it? It does. And so as a business person, you really need to do the math. It's not just the money you make. It's the money that you is available for you to spend. Money you keep. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say is people don't think about cash and profit are not the same thing. You can spend cash, but you cannot spend profit. So when you earn, say, $10,000 or whatever in profit, and then you go buy inventory, well, you know, that money is tied up. It's not available to spend. Now it's sitting in an inventory. Right. Or if you hire someone. And people don't think about, well, how much do I have to sell in order to pay for this? You know, I want to buy, uh, you know, I want to buy a forklift or, you know, I want to buy this other ingredient or whatever. And um, they don't realize how much they're going to have to sell in order to pay for that and get back to where they were today before they bought it. Right, right. And so when we think about these things in terms of wealth, um, sitting down and doing these calculations on the front end of your business and also on an ongoing basis, this is this is such a challenge for so many people. I mean, having a great accountant, right, is just, it's just what you've got to do. But also, Diane, when you're thinking about starting a business, these, this very important issue that you're talking about is something that we have to think about on the front end and not after we're knee-deep in a business. Well, that's true, and um, especially the tax aspect. Yeah. You know, yeah. people don't realize how important that is. And, um, you know, we we invested a lot of money in lawyers, tax lawyers and CPAs when we were buying Essential in order to uh, structure the purchase in a way that wasn't, you know, didn't trigger a big tax event. Right, right. And for, yeah. for small businesses, Diane, for, you know, even just for startups or even for some of the people that are your customers that are very, very small and they're, you may be doing some manufacturing for them, but it's on a, it's on a smaller scale. What are some of the tips that you can offer in terms of what your things you're talking about right now as they begin their businesses and start this journey? Well, certainly, you know, do the math. A lot of times people shortchange themselves. They don't count their labor or they they don't um they don't consider everything, the overhead, the insurance, you know, the things, the additional costs. They just think about, you know, here's what I paid for it, here's what my bottle costs, here's the label, here's the freight. Well, you know, there's still electricity, there's, you know, your building, there's the insurance, there's accounting, there's you know, there's all, all kinds of expenses that are related to that. And so when people set their prices, I would say it's much easier to lower a price than to raise one. Mm. And so you really need to think through that and and decide, you know, what you're going to charge. You know, and go to the shelf, start at the shelf, find comparable products and see what they're selling for. Right, right. And make sure that you err on the side of pricing a little higher than a little lower. Well, yes. I mean, you can always run a special mm-hmm. if you want to, you know. But at the same time, you have to be aware. You need to be fair with your customers, and that you know ingredients, particularly in in our industry, because we buy ingredients all over the world, and you know the our market is affected by political strife, by weather, by war, you know, flood, famine. I mean, there's all kinds of things that affect the ingredient availability and pricing. Right. You can see things jump radically overnight. What you see with a lot of small businesses is that when their prices go up, they don't pass them along. 
They're not paying attention. And, you know, that's a really good way to go out of business. Right. And, you know, the same thing on the downside. If if prices drop, you know, look at what has happened with fuel. And, you know, everybody's complaining about the airlines because the airlines aren't cutting the price of their tickets. They are cutting a fat hog right now because fuel prices dropped. And, you know, they're they're alienating a lot of customers because they feel like they're not getting a fair deal. You know, they feel like some of that should be passed along. So, you know, I would say that it's an awareness of the market and fairness on both sides. You want it to be a win-win. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so sorting through all of that has got to be done on the front end, and it never ends. It, it just It just doesn't. That pricing issue goes on and on and on because you do have to – adjust for inflation. You do have to hire people, so maybe you, you're going to have to raise your prices in order to do that. There's so many things that can fit into that. Well, and then I think time. a plan. Having a plan and doing the math, because, you know, I mean, it's like when we hire an employee, we know that um, we're probably going to lose money on that employee for a while. And so as the business grows, people are going to work really, really hard and we try to um, wait as long as we can to hire the next person so that we can put some money back in the bank because you know that when you start hiring people, your expense is higher than what your income is going to be for that person because they're inexperienced. You know, they're going to have a learning curve. They're not going to make you money initially. It it is so tough to even... Even bring, I mean, one of the things I use is virtual assistants because I don't, I don't really need like a physical presence or, or physical people. And even, even that is such a huge investment because you do have to take time away from what you're doing to train a new person and invest in them and help them to understand your business culture and how it works and what they're going to be doing, doing for you. So you do have to think of that in advance. What do you think, Diane, about, um, you know, someone who's been doing everything themselves for a while and they're looking at hiring, you know, their first person. It's such a it's such a scary idea. You know, for a very, very small business, do you recommend like putting that off as long as you can? Well, I would tend to do that or get somebody part time help. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, try to step into it as slowly as you can or talk to somebody else who made the transition. You know, it kind of depends on the circumstance. So if you are about to get a new customer, say that, you know, you're going to get a wholesale customer or something, you know, once again, you do the math. Is it going to pencil out? You know, volume is not always the answer. Sometimes it's better to sell less and make more Mm -hmm. because you work very hard when you start getting bigger and bigger customers. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's sort of like our business is, is a boutique business, but if, somebody came from Walmart to us and wanted, you know, us to make products for them, that's not our customer. You know, we couldn't, it's not our product, and we couldn't carry that volume, nor would we want to. Yeah. You need to know who you are. Yes, it reminds me of something I read um, from Seth Godin, or actually heard him say in an interview, when someone was asking him, you know, how'd you be so, how'd you become so successful? And you have this blog, and you blog every day, and he said, well, you know, the the real question is not how do I do everything that I do, it's what are the things that I don't do every day? What do I say no to so that I can focus on who I am and what my niche is? And I thought that was such 
a great comment that all of us as, as entrepreneurs can embrace. Well, it needs to be in line with your corporate identity and who you are. And then I think also knowing, I mean, we all want all these things. And so, you know, essential is a green and natural business. And so um, we have this long list of sustainability things that we want to do. But we can't afford to do them all overnight. Right. But, um, you know, this year we'll probably be uh, putting a whole lot of solar panels on, on the roof. And so our power will be coming from solar. And that's a very big thing for us, and we take a lot of pride in it that that's what we're doing. But it's a very expensive thing to do, and it has to do with who we are as a business. To us, you know, that's a worthy investment. It's walking our talk. It's, you know, being who our customers expect us to be. Well, and and it's a really good segue into uh, the wow part of our conversation here because, your target customer is going to look at that investment and see that it speaks directly to them when they are choosing who to do business with. Yes, and, you know, I think we have to be worthy of that. Mm-hmm. We have a ton of things that, you know, we've got a long list of uh, things that we still have to do. You know, when we first bought the business, we had to move the business. That was a very expensive enterprise moving a manufacturing business with big tanks and you know all this filling equipment and you know it's it's not an easy thing and you think of all the plumbing and electrical and things that go with that you know so you this is one of those things where you have to bite off chew and swallow you know before you move on to the next thing and then you know as a company if we're going to grow the way that we want to and really be efficient where we can be cost effective for our customers we needed manufacturing software that was fully integrated, which is not what we had when we bought the business. Well, we had to pick the software, implement the software. That was painful. That was horrendously painful. And, you know, only now are things working the way that they're supposed to be. It was very complex software, and um, we're really happy with the direction things are going now. And so with that working right, then, um, you know, there's all kinds of resources out there that are available to people. Um there's an organization that we're working with, um, Oregon Manufacturing Extension Partnership. Um, they're a nonprofit organization that came in, and you know their goal is to help Oregon manufacturers respond to the challenges that you know come up because you're competing in an increasingly global economy. Well, you know there's SCORE that does, um, you know they have retired executives that small business people can go talk to them. And, you know, I would highly recommend, you know, talking to SCORE and some of these other nonprofit organizations that have, you know, seasoned business people that will help you for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Such a good point that there are so many good resources out there at, at the local level. And, um, you know, one of the ways that we can, um, you know, get the things that we need is to, is to you know, just look in our own local area and follow up on the resources. Talk to people in your local area and see what they're using to help, and SCORE is a great resource. Thank you for sharing that, Diane. So, you know, when you, when you think about these solar panels and so many other things that you've done in your business, you you are using these improvements in your business, not just to improve your business, but also to connect directly with your customers and, in effect, to kind of wow them with what you're doing and encourage them to be loyal to you as their choice service provider. Well, you know, we want to be worthy of their business. Mm-hmm. We want to be who we say we're going to be. 
And, you know, like I said, you all of this stuff is very expensive. You can't just wave your magic wand and do it all at once. And that's where it comes back to having a plan and doing the math so that you know at what point you can afford to do things. So, you know, we've owned this business almost three years, and we're just now, you know, about to cover the roof with solar panels. You know, I wish we had been able to do that in year one, but it wouldn't have made sense. So, you know, I really believe that um, sometimes you just have to bide your time Mm -hmm. and work the plan. I'm hearing a theme here. Have a plan, do the math. Have a plan, do the math. Yeah. <laughs> if you just go back and forth between those two things, you've got a really good shot yeah. um, at, at making your business uh, all, all that you want it to be. Well, and then at the core of it, you know, at the end of the day, uh-huh. you know, we're a natural and organic company, and anybody, you know, can offer natural products. But the question is, you know, do they do it in a socially and environmentally responsible manner? Right. You know, I mean, there's deforestation problems. You know, there's more there's more than natural or organic. It's a question of how you go about it and whether or not you're really walking your talk. And I know that we're um, we're using much more scrutiny on the ingredients we buy, and you know, looking at who we buy them from and how they do business. And you know, I I hate to say this, but I'm sure you know customers know this. There's so many adulterated products out there nowadays. You know that. Uh, Things are not what they are presented to be. And so we have to be very careful to test and to make sure that we are, in fact, delivering to our customers what we say we are. Yes, yes. And you do such a good job of that. And, Diane, you know, it's so inspiring to talk with someone who, you know, saw a business from the outside looking in and decided that, it was something that they could, you know, had fallen in love with and really, really wanted to uh, make a part of their life. I, I love that story. What, what would you share, Diane, as your final words of encouragement for small business owners and startup entrepreneurs who are, you know, looking to grow and just really looking to do it in, in, in this challenging environment that we find ourselves in today? Well, you know, I, I think the bottom line is um, – if you believe you can, you're right. And if you believe you can't, you're right. So a lot of it has to do with uh, being willing to make mistakes and uh, have failures and, you know, move forth. Otherwise, you know, if you're afraid every step of the way, uh, you'll get to the end of your life and never know what you could have been. So it starts with what you believe. It does. I mean, and then a willingness to just, you know, be rat tough mm-hmm. and motor through. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, there's um, one of the best books I've ever read was by Dale Carnegie, and it was How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Oh, yes, I love that book. And, you know, I, I've i probably read it a dozen times at difficult times in my life when I have something that's, you know, maybe keeping me awake. You know, I'll read a chapter. And I think uh, continually educating yourself. There's there's so many opportunities out there with the Internet now. There's resources that, um, you know, I didn't have when I was starting into business. And there's so many people. I think if you just call people and ask, they'll help you. I'm, you know, I am shocked. You know, you can call 
and talk to the president of the bank. Or it's amazing if you call someone, the phone rings, they answer it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't be yes. afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to call people. Yes, I, I, thank you for sharing that. There are so many people that we've talked to on Indie Business Podcast who have borne that out. They've they've created mastermind relationships, mentoring relationships. Um, good, good friendships. Um, it, it's, it is amazing what you can do when you just pick up the phone and well. And, and, and I think the last thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid to hire somebody who's better than you are. You know, I, uh, John Landforce is the president of Essential, and he's a far better operator than I am. And so, you know, I, I have things that I do very well, and he has things that he does very well. And, of course, we have Laura Badcock, who is the most amazing general manager ever. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, you know, having good people, giving them the opportunity, the authority, you know, everything they do isn't going to work perfectly. But overall, you know, you're going to win. And there's only so much you can do yourself. So there's times when you have to make opportunities for others. Thank you so much, Diane, for sharing from your wealth of experience as an entrepreneur and for really just giving us some nuggets that we can hold on to and things that we can put into action in our business. We appreciate hearing from you today. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. And everyone, I want to make sure you check out EssentialWholesale.com. If you have a line of cosmetics that you would like to have uh, some help manufacturing, you have got to check them out. And um, not only do they make fantastic products, but they work, as, Di- as Diane has just explained, very closely with their customers. They have a great staff, a wonderful team of people who can help you create and expand your line in accordance with your brand. So um, it's great to have your company out there, Diane, to help small beauty brands be more successful. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Well, thank you. And, you know, we're we're very blessed by having wonderful customers that have helped us, you know, move along the, the road to success. Definitely. Check them out at EssentialWholesale.com. Have a great day, Diane. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Diane. And if you did, won't you show us some love on Twitter? If you enjoyed this podcast, just go to IndieBusinessNetwork.com forward slash love and if you're logged into twitter you can click once to let your friends know that you enjoy our podcast we really want to make it useful to you and if we are please let us know by sharing and you know if we can improve let us know that too there's a contact link on our website at indiebusinessnetwork.com so you can share what you'd like to see and how we can serve you better i'll see you on the next episode of indie business podcast in the meantime Break all the rules, build your own corporate ladder, and create the life you love.